Hi, this is David Stein, and today's episode's a little different. We're going to re-release an episode that we have remastered. It's an episode that was recorded over five years ago on February 14th, 2017 in Idaho Falls. I had just finished up a five-week stay in southern Mexico. Laprell and I were there. We enjoyed our time, but Laprell got food poisoning on our first night in Mexico. And then she got a severe cold. So it was a tough five or six weeks. Our dog got sick. And we had an unfortunate Airbnb experience in San Cristobal de las Casas in Chiapas. There wasn't any internet. There was no washer and dryer that was promised. The day before I recorded this episode was LaPrell's birthday. And a few days earlier, after having spent five or six weeks in Mexico, she said, I just want to go home for my birthday. So we flew home. This is the next day. I'm reflecting on those experiences. And I recorded this episode on people like us invest like this. The timing of our return was fortuitous because there was a mid-century modern house in Idaho Falls that we had been admiring for years. It came on the market for sale by owner, and we were able to purchase it and move in and move out of a house that LaPro and I had remodeled that we really hadn't expected to live in. But our farmhouse sold faster than we thought, and so we moved into this other house that just wasn't quite working out. So it all worked out. I listened to this episode this morning as I walked, and my first thought is, I just hope I have a transcript because I want to re-record it again. I have a hard time listening to those earlier episodes. My first impression as I listened to it is, what's the hurry? It's subtle, and you might not notice, but it sounds like I'm rushing. To get to the end, I'm pressing. It was about six months after this episode that I hired a voice coach to sort of help analyze what I, what I was doing. Now, at the time that I recorded this back in 2017, I had been podcasting for less than three years. My approach was to prepare an episode, sit down, record it all the way through, then add the intro and outro music and release it. If I stumbled over words, I just plowed through. If I mispronounce the name, I mispronounce the name. And I mispronounce a big name in this episode, physicist Richard Feynman. I was going to record the name Feynman and try to stick it in, but I just decided I'd leave the mistake. His name is Richard Feynman. I'm a little embarrassed about that, but that's what I released. (laughs) I decided not to record this episode again because I decided to keep the original emotion that was there that it conveyed when I originally recorded it. One other note, back then, Money for the Rest of Us Plus, our premium investment education platform, was called Money for the Rest of Us Hub. What I like about this episode is I share my investment philosophy, and I realized in listening to it how consistent it has been over the past two decades. There are subtle changes, and I did a better job detailing my investment approach in my book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing. But I didn't start writing that book until a year later. So I have fleshed out the ideas better since then, but I think it's important to realize that the core is there. I found it valuable to listen to the episode again, and I hope that you do too. Please enjoy Remastered Episode 145, People Like Us Invest Like This. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. 
I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 145. It's titled, People Like Us Invest Like This. A few weeks ago, LaPro and I awoke about 5 a.m. by a sound in our bedroom. We were staying in an Airbnb rental in Merida, Yucatan, Mexico. We listened, and it sounded like some kind of rodent in the room. It was scratching. We'd hear what we thought was debris falling onto the floor from the shelves where the television and some stereo equipment was. I turned on the flashlight and, sh- and shined it on the shelves, the flashlight on my iPhone. I looked around but didn't see anything. Neither of us dared to get out of bed because, frankly, that's kind of what we're like when it comes to rodents. They're not our favorites. We laid back down and tried to ignore it, but a few minutes later, the sound continued. This time I got up but still couldn't find anything. And after a few minutes, the sound stopped altogether. Later in the morning when we wake for good, and there was light, I examined the shelves where the television was and the floor around it. And sure enough, there were cement chips and dust from the wall that must have fallen as the rat scraped at it in the night. I could see where the rat had been digging into the wall because there was a cable coming out. It was kind of a big chunk. And so I texted the owner and I told her, I think there might be rats in the house. I've lived in houses in Mexico with rats. I once woke up, we'd, we had rats in one house down at Chiapas, and the rats would come in through the window and, and grab bananas and, and jump back out. And we bought a kitten and was woken up in the middle of the night by this big fight between the rat and the kitten. And we periodically dealt with rodents or mice at our farmhouse out in Teton Valley. So as a result, when I hear sounds in the night, my availability heuristic, which we talked about a few episodes ago, the idea that the first thing that comes to mind is a mental shortcut our mind takes tends to be what we gravitate to. And if it happens to be ex- extreme, that's what we that's what we believe. And so my first thought, I hear noise in the bedroom. I think it's a mouse or a rat that has come into the home. Then in the morning, I look for evidence of my my suspicion. And sure enough, I didn't see any droppings, but there was cement debris on the floor. And, and that's confirmation bias. When you're trying to assess what happened, look for evidence that proves what it is you believe. Turns out there wasn't a rat in the bedroom. The owner said the cable guy had come the day before to fix the internet and must have left some debris on the floor. She also said there was an opossum that likes to climb on the roof to better reach leaves on a nearby tree. She suggested, you know, with the air conditioning running in the room that we might have had difficulty figuring out where the noise was coming from in terms of the opossum on the roof. Her explanation makes way more sense than mine, especially since she is so particular. There was not any gaps in the wall where a rat could get in. And in talking to her afterwards, she came and visited to sort of check things out. She's pretty squeamish when it comes to rodents and bugs. Physicist Lawrence Krauss related how fellow physicist Richard Feynman was fond of saying to, to people, you won't believe what happened to me today. And then he would add, absolutely nothing. Most days are boring. Surprises and outliers are rare. And often what we think is a rare, unlikely, or unusual event, such as rats eating cement in the bedroom, turn out to have very logical explanations. Classical scholar James J. O'Donnell, in an essay in Edge magazine, discussed this concept. It's known as regression to the mean, which is a statistical concept used in finance, which means most outcomes happen or fall within the average. So when you have something rare, usually the next thing falls close to the average. And we have a period of underperformance in stocks, then oftentimes they're followed by a period where they fall kind of closer to the average. That's the regression to the mean. But he says in real life, it means that anomalies are anomalies. 
coincidences happen all the time with stunning frequency. And the main thing they tell us is that the next thing to happen after an anomaly is very likely to be a lot more boring, ordinary, and predictable. Put in the simplest terms, it teaches us not to be so excitable, not to be so worried, not to be so excited. Life really will be, for the most part, boring and predictable. I received an email the other day from Doug. He's a member of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, and he wrote how he woke up in the middle of the night with a sudden urge to sell all of his investments and move to cash. He has over 40 years of investing experience and has never felt this way. He's not yet 65, but he's retired, doesn't have a pension, so he lives on the income generated from his investment portfolio. His concern was primarily driven by the actions of President Trump. And before I read his quote, let me talk a little bit about the show, Money for the Rest of Us in Politics. I I don't like to discuss politics from a a political perspective in terms of this is my opinion. I've never said who I voted for and, and because that's not the point here. But we do discuss the economic ramifications of politics. What are decisions being made by any government that could impact us economically or financially? Or if there isn't a political official or officials who I believe have a distorted view of how the economy works, we'll talk about that. Or like this case, we're talking about a listener who is having a behavioral response to something that is happening within the political sphere. And so no political agenda here in the show, but we have had a number of episodes recently since the U.S. presidential election that talk about politics, but it's doing it from the perspective of economics, finance, and investing. So he's concerned about the actions of President Trump. And he wrote, I agree with you, which would be me, that the president doesn't have much direct power over the economy. He can tweet all he wants, but he can't change the direction of the global economy by edict. However, he can create an environment of uncertainty that can enable events that elevate risk. And that can have a huge and unpredictable effect on the economy. There was a recent article in the New York Times by one of my investment mentors, Seth Klarman of the Balpos Group. And I, I discussed Seth in episode 102, what it takes to be a value manager. He is the smartest investor I know. I don't, I don't know him personally. He wouldn't know who I am, but I used to meet with him a lot in the early 2000s because he managed a significant amount of assets for one of my clients. And so a lot, of, I would meet with him once a year, a lot. But I learned a ton every time I'd spend a half hour or so with him once a year. So here's his quote. This is from a letter to his his hedge fund clients. And I quoted from some of those letters in that episode, episode 102. He wrote, the big picture for investors is this. Trump is high volatility and investors generally abhor volatility and shun uncertainty. Not only is Trump shockingly unpredictable, he's apparently deliberately so. He says it's part of his plan. Tim Hartford, in his book, Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives suggests Trump deliberately deploys chaos as a competitive weapon. Harper talked about this military strategy, that that's actually a strategy, competitive strategy, and that it does appear to be the management style of President Trump. Here's what Harford wrote. If you could disorient your opponent, forcing him to stop and figure out what was going on, you gained an advantage. And if you could do this relentlessly, your opponent would be paralyzed with confusion. Now, Doug 
continued in his email regarding his impulse to sell all of his investments. He writes, I actually had to discuss this with friends the next day because I was at least smart enough to realize deep down it was emotional and not necessarily rational, but there is a rational rational aspect to it in the sense that unpredictable things can really happen and it is rational to be concerned about them. Doug is reacting to the increased volatility coming out of the Trump administration. Now, whether it's intentional or unintentional, it has added an additional layer of unpredictability. And there's, there's a paradox here, because as investors, we need to invest recognizing that the unexpected can happen. But at the same time, most days are going to be quite boring and predictable because they're going to be just like they were the day before. Now, how do you deal with this? Well, you deal with this by having a point of view, a frame of reference for investing in how you view the world. And this gets to the title of today's episode, People Like Us Invest Like This. Who's us? Well, us would be people, and I often, people ask me that, money for the rest of us, who, who is the us? Well, the us Generally, I mean, there's different ways to interpret that, but one way to, that we're going to interpret it today is people like us are people that have a similar worldview when it comes to investing. I recently took a course on Udemy by Seth Godin. It was called Presenting to Persuade. Very, very good. About 45 minutes long. And in there, he has a framework I'm finding extremely helpful as I work to redesign the money for the rest of us hub to better serve the members there. And, and, I, and I recognize occasionally I mentioned the hub. But this this framework that helped me to really look at it is this idea that we believe this about money investing in our role in the financial world. So that's where it starts. We believe this. This is our worldview. And because we believe this, then we act like this when it comes to money investing in our personal financial situation. We have a certain frame of reference or a certain view of the world. And because of that, we act and invest in this way. People like us, with this view, invest like this. And we don't invest in a different way. And so we're going to kind of use this construct as we talk about how to deal with an unpredictable world that most days is quite predictable. Well, here's here's what I believe. So when it comes to investing, and Greg on, on the Hub has been putting together his personal investment philosophy called an investment manifesto. And this this is mine. And I have a have sort of given hints of it or talked about aspects of it in many, many episodes of the show. But it starts with this. The world, the economy, and the financial markets are complex adaptive systems, which means that they're comprised of a wide variety of interconnected inputs that adapt, learn, and evolve and interact in unexpected ways. And I've given analogies of a sand pile that's very unpredictable. It's a network. All these different pieces and inputs, and they they learn and evolve in unexpected ways. And so what that means is the world economy and financial markets are ceaselessly creative and radically unpredictable. They're not simple machines that could be controlled or predicted by anyone, including a president. Risk, then, means that more things can happen than will happen. And the world is getting more risky because in a complex adaptive system, the number of things that can happen, both good and bad, is increasing exponentially. So the world is getting more risky, more unpredictable. So we have to manage risk. And risk management means protecting against the downside by minimizing the damage from negative and unexpected outcomes. And I've talked about that. 
And thriving means capturing the upside, positioning ourselves to delight and benefit from the emerging opportunities that arise daily in a ceaselessly creative world. So that's the framework. That's my worldview when it comes to investing. Complex adaptive system, unpredictable, getting more unpredictable over time, more risky over time because more things can happen than will happen. And we manage that risk by protecting against the downside and we benefit it from capturing the upside. Now, that's the belief. What is the act? How do we act in terms of how do we invest if we have those beliefs? Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly, the free podcast helps with that. But have you subscribed to my email newsletter? It's where I share an essay on money investing in the economy each week to that list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for almost seven years now. Plus membership gives members the tools and resources they need to manage their investment portfolios. Not only can you tap into my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, But my research is backed by top-tier institutional research partners, such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSCI, Refinitiv Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. You'll also access a community of over 1,000 members to get their insights. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to institutional research services that cost tens of thousands of dollars per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash David. That's netsuite.com slash David. netsuite.com slash David. 
So how do we act in the face of a radically unpredictable, ceaselessly creative, increasingly more risky world? Well, first we earn. We don't. We earn money. We try to generate streams of income through our profession, through our employment, through our lifestyle business, and we save a large percent because we're not going to rely on the investment markets to essentially save us from our retirement. In other words, most of our wealth is going to come from earning and savings, not from the investment returns. And then we protect that wealth. We protect that income stream through disability insurance, through life insurance, through making sure that if we're retired, living exclusively on the income from our investments, that we are not in the position that if the market, for whatever reason, drops 50%, our lifestyle will not be overly decimated. And so we have to protect that using insurance. We use pockets of independence. We don't have all of our investments tied up in the public financial system. We have things that are that are private outside of that, be it land, be it real estate, be it gold. We invest in our education. We have perhaps we have some some food storage. We have pockets, so we're not. So we're protected from whatever may happen. Then there's some things that we do in terms of investing. If we don't know what's going on, we're not gonna what are we not gonna do? We're not gonna to rely on experts or even our own expertise to have investments that depend on knowing a specific outcome. Let's say picking an individual stock or individual securities. Last week, we talked about binary options. That is an investment that is dependent on predicting what's going to happen. In that case, very near term. That's not how we act when we have a belief in a complex adaptive system. Instead, we focus on asset classes as our investing frame of reference. And we, so we look at asset classes, stocks, bonds, real estate, master limited partnerships, REITs, and we come up with a reasonable long-term expected return based on today's market conditions, not just looking backwards, but where are we today? And what are the risks of those asset classes? How, how much could they potentially lose in the short term? At that point, we build low-fee diversified portfolios comprised of, of asset classes, asset categories with multiple return drivers, using primarily index funds and exchange-traded funds, and some non-publicly traded investments, as I talked about. So a diversified portfolio, low fee, not dependent on prediction, because the things can't be predicted. But then we just don't leave it alone. We objectively and periodically review evolving market conditions so we can keep our emotions under control. We want to know what's going on and know basically we're risk managers. We're seeing if the risks are increasing in a certain area. We identify economic and financial market regime changes. Is something happening that might require a change to our investment plan? Let me give you an example of regime change. Back in episode 121 was what if everyone starts indexing and ETFs are becoming a larger and larger part of the market. I talked about that in that episode. I recently read a speech by William R. White. He is the chairman of the Economic and Development Review Committee at the OECD in Paris. And his talk was called Digging the Hole Deeper. And you can get a link to that talk as well. The other articles I mentioned this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's where the show notes are. So William R. White has a very similar worldview that we're talking about in this episode. He writes, and, and his talk was mostly on central banks and central bank policy, but here's a quote. He says, the, fundament, the fundamental ontological error has been to model the economy 
as a relatively simple machine whose properties can thus be known and controlled by its policy operator. In reality, it is an evolving system, too complex to be either well understood or closely controlled. That's what we've talked about. But later in this talk, he talks about another financial side effect is that the functioning of financial markets seems to have changed for the worse since the crisis began, with monetary policy, especially that of the Fed, seen to be the crucial factor driving all markets. That's the narrative. That's the narrative. That's the, the leading story. There has been a marked increase in the correlation of returns within and across asset classes. They're moving much more in tandem. Moreover, as perceptions changed as to whether monetary policy would be effective or not, market reactions have bifurcated. When the mood is positive, financing flows risk on to more risky assets, and when the mood is negative, the opposite occurs risk off. This focus of risk on risk off investors, essentially on tail risk, on the unexpected things that could happen, seriously reduces the long run benefits of diversification and of value investing. He's talking about this paradox. If we focus too much on the extreme events, we ignore the middle where most of the returns are generated over time. We have to protect against the downside, but capture the upside, which is the bulk of the returns. That's an important. Then he talks about a similar set of outcomes will be produced by the recent massive shift of investors into exchange-traded funds. These financial market trends cannot be good for economic growth over time. More money going into ETFs and, and the potential risk of that. Seth Klarman, in his letter, talked about something similar. One of the perverse effects of increased indexing and ETF activity is that it will tend to lock in today's relative valuations between securities. When money flows into an index fund or an index-related ETF, the manager generally buys into securities in an index in proportion to their current market capitalization, often to the capitalization of only their public float, which interestingly adds a layer of distortion disfavoring companies with large insider strategic or state ownership. In other words, so money flows into a, a capitalization-weighted index, but if only a portion of those shares are actually traded, many of them are owned by or sort of non-traded or privately owned, that can distort the capitalization. But he says, thus today's high multiple companies are likely to also be tomorrow's, regardless of merit, with less capital in the hands of active managers to potentially correct any mispricing. Carmen says, stocks outside the indices may be cast adrift, no longer attached to the valuation grid, but increasingly off of it. This should give long-term value investors a distinct advantage. The inherent irony of the efficient market theory is that the more people believe in it and correspondingly shun active management, the more inefficient the market is likely to become. Now, here's the key. If that happens, how can we take advantage of it? And are we there yet? Because what's fascinating about this discussion is that in the footnote in William White's paper, he says the insights of those managing active funds have been overwhelmed by these correlations and they have systematically underperformed ETFs. And so as people index, ideally there'd be opportunity to benefit from that by buying outside of the index, but you could get in a value trap because those stocks could stay cheap and you could never get the outperformance that you, that you would hope to get to have them recognized. And so this is sort of one of these regime changes that we have to monitor, to be willing to change our investment plan. Right now, my portfolio is primarily passive 
invested in index funds and ETFs. There is some active there, but I'm monitoring this regime change because if the time comes where we can be rewarded for not using index funds and ETFs and be able to do so in a way that we can capture the upside, then we need to do that. We can't be locked in to one view of the world. We have to, or one way, we can't be locked into one way to invest. We have to be willing to change that when market, when there are regime changes. Now, I've described a way to invest based on a certain set of beliefs. How people like us, we believe this, so we invest like this. Not everybody wants to invest like that because they have different beliefs. I had somebody quit my site the other day, The Hub, because he didn't believe and want to invest like I invested. He wanted to go invest in real estate, exclusively in real estate, which is fine. You have to find your investment philosophy, find investment mentors that invest in that way, and then go act and go invest and not act in a way that contradicts your investment philosophy. The world is uncertain and becoming increasingly uncertain. Let me close with a final quote by Lawrence Krauss that he wrote in Edge. He says, nothing in in his essay was titled Uncertainty. He writes, nothing feels better than being certain. But science has taught us over the years that certainty is largely an illusion. In science, we don't believe in things or claim to know the absolute truth. Something is either likely or unlikely, and we quantify how likely or unlikely. That is perhaps the greatest gift that science can give. Pastor once said, fortune favors the prepared mind. Incorporating uncertainty prepares us to make more informed decisions about the future. This does not obviate or remove our ability to draw rational and quantitatively reliable conclusions on whether to base our actions, on which to base our actions, especially when our health and security may depend on them. By knowing the world is uncertain and weighing probabilities, coming up with reasonable assumptions for asset classes, then building a diversified portfolio of asset classes, and being willing to be risk managers and make adjustments to our investment plan as the weight of evidence changes in this uncertain world. By being willing to do that, we're recognizing the uncertainty, but we're also being willing to have a viewpoint, to take action based on our views of of what we think is likely to happen compared to what we think is unlikely to happen. And and that's what investing is. It's simply weighing the probabilities in the face of complete uncertainty. But at the end of the day, we have to invest. We have to act and we have to invest and act based on our beliefs. People like us invest like this. That's episode 145. Show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. If not considered your specific risk profile, not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing the economy. Have a great week.